Hello and welcome to Recast, the property podcast brought to you by Remit Consulting, where we explore new and important topics within the property industry. Once again, by Andrew Barber, a.k.a. Paddy. How are you doing, Paddy? I'm very well. How are you? Really good, thank you. Nice to be recording in person today. It is fantastic that we're recording in person. I'd almost forgotten what you look like. (laughs) And yeah, I'm very excited to be talking with you and our guest Chrissy about placemaking. What is it? Why is it increasingly important to the places where we work, live and spend our leisure time? So let's get going. Today we are joined by Chrissy Cullen, who is Place Marketing Director at Related Argent, where she is responsible for placemaking at the 67-acre Kings Cross Estate, with over 4 million square feet of office space and a huge variety of shops, restaurants, homes, and not forgetting being the home of Central St Martins also, a world-class leading art school. And in addition to her responsibilities on the Kings Cross Estate, she is also Place Marketing Director of Brent Cross Town. So welcome Chrissy, thank you for joining us on Recast. Thank you very much. I'm really excited to be here. And it's fantastic that you're here with us in our first episode of the recording face-to-face on the estate itself. So thank you for the recommendation. Yeah, I'm absolutely thrilled that we're here at Spiritland. It's, it's great for us. Yeah, I think Spiritland is fantastic. It's a, For those that don't know, it's a cafe, bar and radio studio here in King's Cross. And it's been created as a unique space for music lovers. So we won't be singing, though, will we? Maybe later, Paddy. Maybe okay. later. Um, but anyway, to talk about placemaking at this fantastic estate that we're in at the moment, Chris, if you don't mind, I'd like to start by asking you to explain what is your definition of placemaking and the value that Related Argent places on it? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, I think, for me, placemaking is everything from the initial design of a space, the open spaces that there are within the spaces between buildings, to how you activate them and how people like to interact with those spaces and what draws them there. So that could be anything. It's very, very broad. It's everything from how um, it's designed, what's, what's there in the space. Let's take an example here of Granary Square. People know it for the fountains. It's fa- famous for the fountains. And that's part of the public realm design of the space, the original vision for the space. But then there's lots of different elements that layer on on top of that so whether it be uh, one-off events that take place such as the everyone remembers Lumiere um, which took place on Granary Square where the building was lit up to regular events that maybe happen seasonally um, or weekly events such as markets to art within the public realm. So when we commission pieces of art such as the Granary Square Christmas tree as a seasonal installation. So all of that, I think, combines to make placemaking. I mean, it's such a broad and fantastic concept I'd really like to kind of dig into it but I'd like to start with your last point actually about art I think this is something that people don't often realize can have such a value in the experience of being somewhere so could you walk us through maybe some of the decision points or strategic vision for art within the King's Cross estate I think 
I think art was originally part of a strategy for King's Cross. And I think it was born out of that uh, relationship that we had with the creative um, industries because of Central St. Martins being um, its home, being located at King's Cross. So I think early on, the Argent team and the King's Cross development team saw art as being key, you know, home to this famous art school. Um, How does the estate reflect that? And um, there have been three programmes of curated art um, on the estate over its uh, last 10 years. And they have varied from um, commissioning permanent pieces of art um, that are owned by the King's Cross estate um, and are here to stay. So a good example of that is the Eva Rothschild's um, statue that's in Lewis Cubitt Park here, to very temporary art installations such as, um, I think a good example of a temporary art installation, such as Roseworth that we have now. Um, Roseworth is a, a very famous Canadian artist who um, who is also known, real name Peter Gibson, and he designed the art that we have that runs down into Coldrop's yard, um, which is um, a mini city. It's a cycling route for children, which had the objective of drawing people into Coldrop's yard, but also to actually provide something for families and children to use across the summer months. So the, the curated art programme has a, has a sort of defined purpose which is to create to to create permanent pieces of art for the estate as well as temporary pieces. Fantastic. And it's so evident that the strategy behind the art is really clear because do you think the history of this area played a part in that? I in all honesty, I don't think it, it's it's history prior to the the big redevelopment programme which started 20 years ago when that mm. planning permission was first received and um, Principles for a Human City was written. Prior to that point, I'm, I'm not 100% sure we still draw on that, um, though it provides great content for art exhibitions and other activities, um, everything from, you know, the clubbing scene that's very famous... Um, for King's Cross to back all the way back to the Industrial Revolution. But I think most of the art that's here on the estate and has been brought into the estate in recent years is very much sort of current. It's very much focused on representative voices from and issues that are now um, or future focused and less so looking back to the past. And do you think that influences your decisions on when to make things permanent and when to make things temporary? Because the art scene is always changing. And like you mentioned, it's great to have new voices being able to be represented. Is that how you use your temporary art installations to bring those forward? Very much so. Um, To be honest, most of the art at King's Cross has been sort of temporary or seasonal in nature. And I think... That is wonderful for the estate and wonderful for visitors and people who are working here because it provides a new interest. It's an interesting outlook. Of course, permanent public um, art is really important to us. Um, and the fountains are an example mm-hmm. of, of art, really, um, as, it, as the Eva Rothschild sculpture that I mentioned earlier. Um, but I think that the role that temporary art has to play is so... Um, important in terms of drawing people here you have to give 
almost you have to give a, a, a time scale, a restricted um, opportunity in mm. order to, to attract people and draw people in. Mm. Um, often we hear people say, oh, no, has, has that gone? I was planning on coming to visit it. And the more that people know it's there for a limited time, obviously, the more it helps to attract and draw people people through but also it helps us to change and adapt and reflect and represent different people different perspectives diverse voices um, and if we only had permanent art we just wouldn't be able to showcase so many different artists and so many different sort of stories behind the art as well and I think you'd run out of space if you kept putting in permanent art. <laughs> There's always more space. You'd be weaving through it all the time. How, how do you measure the success of the art? Do you do you look at sort of footfall figures, or do you get data on how many people are going to shops and restaurants and bars in the particular area of an installation? Is, or do you just go, well, it's nice to have? I think I, mean, I was sort of worried with this question always that some lightning bolt is going to come down and strike me down if I suggest that um, footfall or, or, or coverage in the, in the media is a way to measure art. Um, and certainly I should be completely ostracised from ever going into to the University Central St Martins again. However, um, of course, it's a it's a huge investment. I mean, it's a massive investment in the art. And over the years, the, you know, we have been so lucky that the King's Cross Estate and its ownership have believed in art and wanted to invest in it. And and with any business, you have to justify that investment. I think we we want to gain an immediate. Um, sort of interest, public interest in it. And that's often um, measured by media coverage. And then we're keen to know that the public are engaging with the piece of art. So then we look at the social media engagement, how many people tag it, how many people are photographing it, how many people are mentioning it in their social posts. Because then we know it's actually they're there and they're enjoying it and they've recognised it and they've seen it. I don't think we ever, unless it was a very, very temporary piece, we don't tend to measure the art based on footfall because there are so many other factors that influence footfall and we during the period of time it would be there we'd have events we'd have new store openings we'd have other things that would influence that um sometimes we look at we look back at um an art commission and um we look at the value that it it might have increased by and, and the art does actually increase in value especially if it's been very popular and if the artist is has become more celebrated over time so you can look at it purely from an, an investment perspective yeah it's interesting because i think on obviously king's cross 67 acres there are asset managers and developers out there who have far smaller holdings um who may resist doing something along these lines because they can't measure it or they don't know that it's going to necessarily add value to their investment. So it's quite a difficult thing for them to do. I I, I absolutely see that challenge that the smaller asset managers um, and owners... Uh, that they they face this real sort of challenge and uh, how do they measure it? How can they prove that it will work for them? But what we do know and the feedback that we get from our occupiers is this is part of what draws people to want to live and work here. 
So underlying beneath all of that, um, we can say, do people want to locate their offices here? Do they want to make King's Cross their business home? What are the factors when we ask them? What are the factors that influence that? Yes, there's things like connectivity across London and Europe. Obviously, it's great advantage there. But actually, it's also, what is it the place where people want to be? Employees' desire to be in a space is now number one on the list of reasons why um, an office will locate where it's located. So I really do feel that the feedback that we've had has been very much the art, the events, the markets, um, the general feel for King's Cross. Um, it's it all contributes to why people want to be here. And that has the biggest, as a property company, has the biggest value of all. Thinking about it from your perspective as the asset manager and developer, how do you go about funding them on a day-to-day? Does it all come from the kind of landowners or do your occupiers also contribute to that? Is that how they kind of recognise the value? So uh, the... Investors in King's Cross are are the uh, people who have invested in the art. The owners of the King's Cross estate have believed in that art programme and it's their investment. The individual businesses that are here don't fund it via their their service charge. They don't fund that activity. It It is an investment made by the King's Cross Central Limited Partnership. You mentioned that limiting the time frame where people can access a particular installation or an event can almost drum up attention for it by fear of missing out. Do you use the same strategy in the same way as your temporary art for events? Do you get the same reactions in that way? Uh, yes, yes and no. The the events are obviously more um, time limited. They're very time bound. Um, some of our events go on for long periods of time. So something like the Christmas activity uh, this year, we'll be having club curling back again um, in Coldrops Yard, um, which was really popular. That actually uh, went on for over three months over the Christmas period and beyond. And in the summer, we have our screen on the canal, um, which lasts for six weeks. So some of the events last for a longer period of time, but they are very few and and far between. Most of our events are sort of between a week, three days to a week, really. And that's, that's partly for consideration of the people who live, work and study here um, that, you know, yes, we want to attract visitors, we want to draw people to our shops and restaurants, but we also need to be considerate of everyone here. But it is also to do with actually a limited time period. You bring people to the event so that people can come together for the event, so it can feel, have a good atmosphere. But it's it's always a bit of a, a juggling act in terms of getting the message out there, giving people time to get the, the word of mouth around, as well as our marketing and promotion of those events and activations, and, and then repeating them regularly. So one thing that we did learn with something like markets, we, we've been having canopy markets for years now, which is under West handside canopy and we started with lower stable street market and we started off having it monthly and we realized that actually monthly just kind of didn't work because people didn't know exactly when it was going to fall in the month because the months all vary and they wanted some certainty the moment we moved it to weekly suddenly 
it all clicks. It all works. People love it and they come regularly because they know the Stable Street Market is going to be there every single weekend. So it does vary by the type of activity in the event that that there is. But um, yes, I think having having something that's very time bound does create a real demand and a real interest. And do you think that the variety of events, because you mentioned there various events that the King's Cross Estate hosts, as well as several markets that you hold, is that variety really important in order to bring a variety of people, for example? Absolutely. I think it's very hard to find a single event that appeals to everyone. And we have so many different audiences as as a part of London. You know, I think it, it's something that when you think about a neighbourhood, you have so many people that you want to cater for. You want to cater for the local community. You want to cater for the people that live within your neighbourhood as well as the people that live nearby. Um, You want to cater to the people that work here, the people that are studying here, the people that are just coming by and visiting. I mean, we're so fortunate with King's Cross and St Pancras that we have the Eurostar. We have international visitors coming directly in. We want to be able to cater to them and finding of sort of one event, one event fits all is, is very hard. We do our best to provide enough variety across the year so that we feel everybody has been catered for. Some of those visitors, though, are fairly transient. You mentioned the Eurostar traveller. They're going to come in, they might be here for an hour or two and then they're going to go because they're moving on or they arrive and then they're getting on the train. Have you found that you're getting a reputation, if you like, as a, a destination within London rather than just I'm passing through because I'm I'm old enough and grown enough to remember when this wasn't such an attractive part of London and certainly not the sort of place you would want to go at the weekend or, dare I say, in the evening unless you're going nightclubbing. Whereas now, it, to me, it's more of a, a retail and leisure destination that I'd be quite happy to come to and travel into town just to come here. Is, is that something you are aware of that people are coming from further afield just to be here um a a survey that we did uh, just a couple of months ago um showed that 14 percent of the people that were on the king's cross estate were international visitors which we were absolutely delighted with we were really really thrilled to have that that larger audience and most of those were from france um, which does then indicate that that's as a result of the Eurostar. But um, our second audience, international audience, was people from the States. So word is definitely getting out there. But our research has also shown that there are a lot of people who are living in London that still haven't visited the wider King's Cross estate, which is, you know, as you said, there's 67 acres that all sit behind King's Cross and St Pancras stations. Um, There are lots of people right here in this city not yet being aware of everything that there is on offer. So we have a, we still know we have a long way to go. There's still so much more that we can do to get people here visiting, understand everything that is on offer here, whether it's coming to our events, visiting our art, or coming and shopping in our in our hundred shops and restaurants. Um, yeah, it's lots still to do. Yeah, certainly some of the brands you've got here are very attractive to um, well all, all generations, but. Uh, you know, I mustn't bring my son here because my credit card will go into overload, I think. 
<laughs> I have to be very careful whenever I walk through this estate that I don't accidentally trip into one of the shops. It's a big danger for me. Oh, I must find more reasons to get you to trip up into the <laughs> shop. That would be good. <laughs> so for an estate that relies so much on attracting people to it for all of its various provisions that it has, how have you managed with various adversities. I'm thinking that we're recently coming out of the pandemic and also the recent very sad news of Queen Elizabeth II's passing. I can only imagine that those do have a business impact to an estate such as yours. How do you manage those? Well, um, if we take the pandemic as the the first um, example of that, uh, it was had an absolutely huge impact on the estate. Um, just talking about my area in terms of what we could do with the public spaces, the events um, and the different activities, just in terms of marketing an estate where everyone, no one could actually come here. Um, it was it was a very difficult time. And we spent a good two months planning, really considering putting together the proposal of how we would draw people back to King's Cross as soon as though that first lockdown period ended. And some of the things that we put together then, we're actually now continuing on an annual basis. We've learnt a lot from it. And actually it got us to think very differently about our approach to some some elements of art, some elements of, um, of events. So to give an example of that, um, up to that point in time, we hadn't had an artist in residence. And we decided that um, we'd like to introduce that in 2020. And in particular, we were attracted to uh, an artist that creates notes from strangers. His name's Andy Leake. And he puts these very inspirational, positive thoughts out into the public realm, which really actually bring a smile to people's faces. And it was an artist and an opportunity that we thought now is the right time. So he created a campaign called This Much for us and it was a direct his direct response to the two metre distancing at a time when we had to be two stand two metres apart. And he created a plethora of different inspirational signs that had two hands exactly it's exactly spaced two two meters apart saying things like i've missed you this much um dogs loved lockdown this much and various other inspirational messages which was wonderful and now we've carried on our artists residency and we're in our third year so i'm not sure we'd have actually approached it on that on that basis if it wasn't for that but it was very hard in terms of cancelling um, events and cancelling activity, um, especially when you're working with third parties. We have a lot of third parties who approach us um, who want to have activity taking place on the estate. And sadly, as you've mentioned, with um, Her Majesty the Queen's passing, there were major events that were due to take place on the estate for the weekend after she'd passed uh, away. And and those had to be those had to be cancelled along with a lot of sporting events. We took the decision to cancel our markets for the first weekend as well. Um, we had to make a decision on the day of the announcement, and we just 
weren't sure about the mood and the sentiment and we wanted to be as respectful as possible. These decisions aren't always popular with everyone um, and that that's one of the hard things, you know, that it's it's very hard to get it right um, for for everyone and, you know, be fair to traders, fair to retailers and fair to third parties. It's a classic mum line that you can't make everyone happy so you've just got to do what you believe is right and like you said the most respectful thing is usually most appropriate yes that is such a mum thing to say (laughs) (laughs) could we talk a little bit about the value of placemaking and how you place value on it at your management meetings maybe you know how, how do you deal with that side of things I'm very lucky that I work for an organisation that values what we've defined here as placemaking. They value public realm, the need for public realm. They value events and art and other activities that enliven the spaces. So uh, I'm fortunate that I don't have to sort of argue the case too frequently but with everything we we measure we measure our performance we need to prove a return on investment for our activities so we try to we try to look at look at what the objectives are first and i think that's so critical because not everything um, in place making has the same objective sometimes it's about drawing people into a space how you know really feeling that this is a community space everyone can come there measuring footfall measuring number of people there measuring consumer sentiment about that space measuring awareness of a a particular area and and number of visits and so on and then other things have very different objectives so a permanent piece of art is unlikely to be measured just on the basis of how many people walked past there and came to visit it there's a reputational assessment did it improve the reputation of the location? Did it drive that kind of sentiment that this was an area that people wanted to buy a home or base their business from there? And so we look at that as well. So it's a combination of the quantitative side of measuring performance as well as the qualitative side. And both of those things have to be balanced out based on what was the purpose in in the the first place it's interesting uh, so just saying about purpose because we're moving to a different kind of vision and purpose for this date now it's sort of nearing completion king's cross is due to be completed in 2024 so we're really looking at our objectives in a slightly different way and now we you know we have greater awareness and we have businesses based here Have you found that over the time that you've been developing the placemaking strategy and putting all these things into motion that you've been approached by others who are trying to do the same thing? I think, at least from my perspective, it's only about now that people are starting to talk about it with so much interest. Have you found that people have looked to you to learn what to do, what not to do? Absolutely. And we still host many tours and talks here at King's Cross. And in fact, the marketing and events team are hosting a tour for one of our competitors just on Thursday. But more broadly and more widely, we have a visitor centre that's actually based almost next door to the studio that we're in now on Stable Street. And they host regular tours and talks. We have a big model of the King's Cross estate and over the years I've 
I think we've lost count of the number of uh, visiting developers, asset managers, um, estate managers, universities, schools, everyone you can imagine coming to visit the model, to have the talks and then to have the tools around the estate. That's actually really important for us as a business to, you know, share any knowledge, any any insights that we have. Does it also, in my inner competitiveness is coming out, does it push you to get more creative and more aspirational with your ideas? I guess if everyone is learning, are you staying a step ahead? Oh, it's a, it's a big, big uh, challenge for us. That's definitely the case because you, you kind of, when you're, is, is nothing more challenging than being at the forefront and then having to stay as that kind of leader and we a lot of people have caught up a lot of people have looked at what we've done and they've replicated that which is an absolute compliment for us and the estate and we see it that way but we we want to have we want to be first to doing activity we want to really lead and so we're always trying to reinvent drive innovation keep the quality but keep something new as well how do you go about that innovation process because you talked earlier about how the pandemic made you approach things in a different way and that was if you like forced upon you you know you had to adapt away from the pandemic how do you drive that innovation i think we have a really collaborative team so we do have interest in across our entire business in the activity that we do as a place marketing team, which is great because we get lots of different input from different people um, with different skills and different areas of expertise. We also work with external consultants. We have external curators for the art programme. We work with external consultants on other event activity. We ask, we invite people from outside our business to challenge what we're doing. We often put together as a team a proposal and then sort of bring in the red team, bring in our sort of trusted friends and say, tear this to pieces, tell us what's wrong with it, tell us what we should be doing how could we do this better how can we actually turn this on its head and make it even more innovative so yeah it is it is about being ready to accept critique i think and you know we we look worldwide to see examples of what happens elsewhere we're we're constantly looking to sit get inspiration from other countries and other cities on that point of looking worldwide how is the placemaking scene on a global perspective? I think um, it is looked at, reviewed on a global perspective. I can't speak to, to every country, and I'm sure there are lots of cities and countries that could really benefit from a, from a whole-scale review. But it's interesting to see how different cultures approach it in different ways. I think that's very interesting. And you can think about it in different levels. So I remember a couple of years ago reading about an area, a neighbourhood within Barcelona that had had refocused its, its placemaking all around community, created community gardens, community markets, community stores, bringing in local residents to actually transform the placemaking and transform. They had the deciding vote. They, they got to choose what would happen in the public spaces. But not only that, they were able to actually 
make the changes themselves. They gave over parts of those those neighbourhoods and that had a really community feel. Other cities um, tend, can have much more, a very different steer on art. I feel art in London has become, actually, in the public realm, there's a lot of very similar art that's out there at the moment, these very bold, striking colours um, from, you know, fantastic artists such as Camille Walala, um, thinking about the South Moulton Street installation there, uh, or Yinka Ilori. There's a sort of very bold, colourful tone to where London has gone, and I, I think it sort of sets it apart. If you looked to another city, their placemaking installations, their placemaking initiatives would be very different because it's, it's, about, it's from the culture of that place. You mentioned Barcelona. Is there a a particular favourite of yours, a country or a city where you think they're doing it really well that you take inspiration from or or there are just too many to list? Uh, too many to list. Uh, the, there are so many um, fantastic cities. And immediately as you ask that question, uh, five sprung to mind. You know, another one popped up and another one popped up and there is... There is Go on, give, so... give us your top five. Go on. <laughs> Um, well, these are all personal preferences, yeah. I would say. Um, I think I love uh, Lisbon and how Lisbon approaches placemaking. I think what I love about Lisbon is one of these places that actually its placemaking is very much rooted in history. It goes back from after the earthquake um, that took that took place there in the I think the 18th century. They rebuilt the city with streets and squares and public spaces, and they carried on adding more and more elements of placemaking to those public spaces. And I, I think they do it really well at a lots of different levels to lots of different audiences. Um, I uh, I also think that um, New York has always had a, a very different approach, but in different areas. I think the Williamsburg district of New York has a has had a fantastic, probably about 10 years ago now, but a real change in its approach to place um, placemaking and how they've sort of repurposed buildings, the introduction of events, um, changing uh, buildings to create permanent markets there, um, as well as a lot of street art um, and new initiatives. But, yeah, those are a, a couple, at least, that initially sprung to mind. OK, I won't push you on the other three. <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm hearing is that I think Recast needs to go on tour to see the different place-making hubs of the world. I'm so. hearing that as well. Oh, excellent. I'm glad we're on the same page. <laughs> I don't think any of us would argue that there isn't a value in place-making. Everything that we've said today really backs that up. But what I'd like to ask, and to the property industry, setting aside the consumers of place-making... To the industry itself, how would you convince someone that placemaking is worth the investment in terms of time and money? I think I w would talk to the value, the value of the, uh, of that property. I think placemaking adds value. It creates a an asset that has appeal and a demand and an interest. It creates a reputation that is so subtle on one um, side um, 
but so strong and lasting. You know, this is, this is the thing about placemaking done right. The long term benefits to the value and the investment that's made really do pay dividends. Um, and I think, you know, that's absolutely why an area like King's Cross is seen such a good example because the investors did put the money forward. They were serious about art and events and actual the public realm. And that has paid back in dividends. And, you know, I think I, w- I would use case studies to say this is the difference it's made. Um, and on our art alone, you know, there's been the investment value, the increase in value that you've made by uh, investing in that is is really significant. So not to be underestimated. Absolutely. Okay, Chrissy. before we finish, how do you know when a place is made? What's the, what, where do you draw the line and say, my job is done? I'm, I'm going to tell you that a place is never made. Um, the job is never over. Um, and I... I love the fact that you can't just sort of, um, you know, rub your hands together and say, "Yep, that's it. My job's done. I'll, I'll move on to the next to the next thing." I I think bringing people to a place is um, is a constant. It needs to constantly evolve um, and adapt and change. And you know, there's always something new to do, and there's always a different perspective. So I would say I. I don't want places to be made. That's that's almost the start of their demise. Um, they need to constantly evolve and change. There you go. There you have it. Um, that's been absolutely fascinating. Yes, thank you, Chrissy. I mean, I've been a great admirer of this estate and um, have, I've heard you speak before and I always thought that you were a fantastic speaker. So it's, I'm really happy that you were able to join us today and talk about this great place. And who knows, maybe I'll be tripping into a few of the shops on my way out of here. I am slap bang in the middle, so it would make sense. I think you should. Uh, thank you very much for having me. I've, I've loved speaking to you both again. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recast, the property podcast brought to you by Remit Consulting. I've been Emily Bates. And I've been Paddy Barber. If you want to keep in touch with the Recast team and know more about upcoming episodes, make sure you follow us on Instagram at recast.pod.